If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out GuardianVets.com now. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. We're going to jump into the conversation with veterinary attorney Justin Weaver here in just a second. And Justin is a guest that's coming back for the second time. But um, before we do, we're going to take a quick break here from our sponsor. We'll be right back. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to a hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A vet check pet urgent care center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talk to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting to you, reach out and learn how you can own your own vet check pet urgent care center franchise today by visiting vetcheckforpets.com, which again is vetcheckforpets.com. All right. So we are back. Justin, you are here for the second time. And I'm really excited for this conversation. And you've had some changes on your end. And I want to give you a chance kind of at the beginning to share a little bit about kind of where you're at, what you're doing, your role and how you help people. And then we'll jump into some interesting things that we were chatting. And I was eager to press record on the conversation we're having pre-podcast recording because it's a lot of good stuff that we can get into today. But thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So yeah, quick background for those that don't know you, if you don't mind kind of sharing a little bit of that, and then we'll get into some of the questions. Yeah. So I'm an attorney. I almost exclusively, and I always add that almost caveat, almost exclusively represent veterinarians and other similarly situated medical professionals. With the bulk of that, I'd say probably somewhere in the range of 70% or so of my clients are in the vet space. I assist those clients with any number of legal issues and business issues Primarily, they'll focus on mergers and acquisitions, sales of hospitals, acquisitions of hospitals, de novo startup practices, real estate issues, and everything that comes along with that. And I always tell potential clients I'm able to assist them kind of from start to finish other than litigation matters. I like to stay out of the courtroom where possible. Yeah, makes sense. And then from our first conversation to now, you made a, a little bit of a shift for where you're at. You want to let people know 
where you're at, what firm you work with? Yeah. So from a representation standpoint, nothing has changed. I'm still doing all the same work. I have made a move to a different firm, the Oberman Law Firm, which provides similar services to my old law firm, representing both veterinarians, dentists, and other medical professionals, again, with my main focus being on the vet space. So new firm, but otherwise everything has remained the same, still representing the same clients in this industry. Yep. I'll make sure to have all the contact information and stuff in the show notes as well. But I've always heard, you know, it's a niche if it's over a third of a concentration. So you're pretty heavy in vet med. So I think you can confidently say that you're oh, like exclusively um, vet med because <laughs> that's pretty heavy. And I've always, and I know I say niche and I will never change, even though I've been told it's niche. I just do not like that word, the way it sounds. I always say niche. I know it's wrong, but people have heard me say it enough. So they're just going to have to live with it. But right before we click record, you were talking, and I think it's a great place to kind of start is there's been a little bit of a shift in the landscape of the acquisition market, right? It was burning so hot that you couldn't basically touch it. And it was like the panacea to be a seller. And maybe it's not quite as good, still attractive, but what have you seen? And again, I know you'll put qualifiers that you don't do all the deals and all these, again, <laughs> going back, you work really heavy in this space. So of anyone out there, I think your viewpoint is really interesting. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're seeing and if there's been any kind of major shifts or changes. Yeah, I think there really has been. And so, you know, in fact, you and I spoke maybe a few months ago, probably dating back, I guess, more than a few months, maybe six months or so ago. And at that time, we we're really kind of at one of the highest points that I've seen in terms of what you could get from a hospital as a seller. And focus primarily here in this discussion on kind of selling to a corporate consolidator and just talking about how this market has shifted, just as an example, we were seeing a market that was very, very competitive. The multiples that sellers were able to get for their practices were at a level that I had never seen before. And we're talking about it as seeing, not to get too far into the specifics here, but you know, multiples of 15 or 16 or 17 in one case for hospitals at that point. And the competition, there was a ton of competition. We were getting LOIs and offer letters from seven or eight different buyers for each seller, which was giving our clients a ton of leverage, right? It's always better to have another offer to negotiate against and to be able to tell the potential buyer that we're getting X from this buyer without giving too many specifics, we need you to give us the same thing. And so it was at a point where it really felt like it was too good to be true at times. I mean, our sellers were getting everything they wanted and were really able to use that leverage to get great deals. And it was a great time in a, to sell their hospitals. We could get into this if you wanted to. There are a number of factors that I think were driving that competition and those numbers up from inflation, or I'm sorry, from low interest rates, the money that was available, the pandemic affected other industries to a much greater extent, at least from a profitability standpoint, than it did in the veterinary industry. And so you were in a good place to sell. Over the course of the last few months, we're definitely starting to see that all of those great terms start to get a little less favorable for our sellers. There's less potential offers on the table at times. There's less leverage for these sellers. And so we're starting to see the market, which I think everybody had to anticipate happening at some point, but we're starting to see the market pull back a little bit on some of these sales. There's still a lot of great opportunities. So I want to be careful by sounding the alarm. Sure. I'm not trying to sound the alarms here. It's just not quite at that 
level that it was maybe a few months ago. Sure. And I know when we've talked with a couple of the people that have been guests in this podcast, just kind of a Zoom roundtable, it was conversations of some of the practices that were the ideal corporate acquisitions have been scooped up and like just the lack of supply, similar to like housing, right? Like part of what pushed that up so much was there wasn't the ideal practices for sale. A lot of those have been scooped up. And so maybe that on top of some of the other factors are there, but yeah, as a seller, it's still wildly profitable industry. You have a lot of tailwinds as far as the demand behind it. And so a lot of conversations on my side have been with those that are looking to maybe they can't acquire. So it's the de novo startup. It's, hey, I'm going to go buy something that's not quite pristine and then make a lot of adjustments. It's kind of run old school and been much smaller to get a jump start. But yeah, as a seller, there's still so much demand. And I think the other thing has been the real estate aspect of it. Real estate prices are so ridiculously high, which I know as you chat through different negotiations, hey, that we're going to carve that off. It's going to be separate or maybe they're just leasing it. But I just wanted to kind of go through and chat on when you are seeing things now with some of the adjustments, if you were still thinking about wanting to sell, and we've talked about this in kind of the exit planning podcast I did, and I know you and I talked about that a little bit before we hit record, like you still have to kind of prepare for that process. And so what can someone do to make sure that they still do get the maximum amount of offers or think through things and just be thoughtful on how to allow them to still see a higher multiple than than maybe what their peers will. I'll let you go there because there's a couple different follow-ups. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. You mentioned your exit planning podcast. I actually went back and as I told you before we started recording here, listened to that recently. And there are a lot of good tidbits in there, I think, that are very valuable. The one thing you mentioned in there that kind of resonated with me in listening to that episode again was that in an ideal situation, you start planning for your exit on day one when you acquire the hospital. Now, I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of professionals in the space are not doing that, right? Other industries too. No one exactly. does that. <laughs> any, any, yeah, I don't mean to call out missionaries <laughs> in any in any way. Anybody, right? It's very hard to go into something and plan that at your retirement age or sometime before that, you're going to take this certain step. In an ideal world, sure, as you said, that's when you would start planning. But even if you don't start planning at that point, you do have to start planning if you want to maximize your profitability and make sure that you land in the best situation for yourself. You want to start planning as early as possible. For me, most of my clients who come to me and engage me to represent them in connection with the sale of their hospital are coming to me when they're actually ready to sell, right? They're engaging me at a time where either they've received an offer letter or a letter of intent that they want to negotiate, or in some cases, they've already signed that offer letter. And so they've already locked themselves in to going forward on a non-binding basis with the buyer, which by the way, I would not recommend signing a letter of intent before you speak to your attorney as a little plug there. But at that point, it's too late to start planning for your sale, right? There are things that we're obviously going to do in the legal and business negotiations to get you the best deal, but you're not going to be able to necessarily change your profitability at that point or take other actions that you could have taken several years ago to maximize that profitability or to ensure that you're not going to have to continue to work, for example, for a period of time that you're not willing to work for. And so the biggest takeaway for sure is to start planning for that eventual exit as early as you can. And so one of the things that you kind of shared with me prior was, yeah, you know that you're going to have to continue to work 
And if you're going to like reduce your schedule and want to slow down because, hey, your body is not holding up as much as possible. But also, I mean, the age of sellers is not always someone that's 65, right? It comes in all shapes and sizes and it doesn't mean, and this is something I've tried to stress to younger veterinarians that are starting. It's like, yeah, the reason you want to start planning and thinking about exiting is you don't have to be late career and be done, done. You could go start a hospital, grow it sell it within kind of five to 10 years and then go work relief for a couple of days a week and have a wonderful lifestyle the rest of your life and give yourself more freedom and flexibility if you do the right things and really wanted to grow and get after it earlier on. Now that's not right for everyone, but some people are really attracted to that. And I think the other idea of you're going to have to work for that corporate buyer for a couple of years. And so as you've seen the shifts and kind of the slowing down of just kind of saying yes to everything, if I'm a corporate I'm trying to buy it. I'm like, yep, sure. Your terms are good. This is that. Are they adjusting anything from the deal flow? Like typically you're getting a portion up front. They're going to hold some back. You have to work for X amount of years. You're going to have different hurdles. I mean, are those changing or they're just, are they forcing and pushing more towards this longer term? Like, Hey, we're going to be less up front. Are you seeing any shifts like that? Yeah, for sure. And I don't know if you're able to say, I don't know if you, I, again, I don't want to get you. <laughs> yeah, no. like, yeah, I can't really answer that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I just, before I go onto that, just quickly, your point about a buyer that's going to look for you to work for a few years after you sell the hospital to them, I think that's critical for sellers to understand, especially in connection with a corporate sale, right? If I'm selling my hospital to another veterinarian who's ready to come in and take over my productivity or take over at least a large portion of my productivity so that I can cut back my schedule and start easing into retirement, that's great. And that's something that we see a lot in private sales between professionals, because there is that doctor who's looking to come in and work. In a corporate deal, a sale to a corporate consolidator, that's not the case, right? They're buying the hospital and they're going to then move on to the next hospital that they purchase. And they don't necessarily have the doctor to come in and replace you right away. And so there's going to be an expectation that you continue to work and not only that you continue to work, but that you continue to work at the same level that you're working at immediately prior to the closing, generally for a few years. And so you need to make sure that you've built in that cushion so that you're not looking to sell and retire the next day or cut back on your schedule the next day, I should say, which is a goal that a lot of sellers, when they first come to us, are looking to accomplish. There are ways to accomplish that in terms of hiring other associates and getting other doctors onboarded so that you cut back before the sale. And then the corporate buyer is going to be fine with that because you've got someone who's already taking on some of your productivity, but you're not going to be able to work 60 hours a week, sell the hospital, and then the next week cut back to 20 hours a week. That's just not something that's going to be feasible with a corporate sale. And I think in terms of the structure of the deal, I think that's a great question because when you get a letter of intent or an offer letter, it's, it's going to show the total purchase price that you're going to be paid. And sometimes some buyers take some more liberties with that. And they're not only going to build in the purchase price, they're going to build in what their anticipated value of certain equity that you're going to receive is going to be worth in several years. And so you have to be careful. There's a lot of complexity that comes into play with that purchase price to make sure you understand what it is you're actually getting. How much cash are you getting on day one? Oftentimes, there will be an equity component, as I mentioned, where you're receiving stock in the buyer for a period of time. What does that mean? There are different classes of stock. When can you get paid out? What are you entitled to in connection with that stock? All of those things are very important questions you need to sort out. Other thing that we're seeing 
and at least that I'm seeing come into play even more often are certain provisions that protect those corporate buyers to ensure that you're going to satisfy your work commitment post-closing. And so we see holdbacks of the purchase price where they put a certain amount of the purchase price into escrow. We see what are known as clawbacks, where essentially you owe a certain amount of money to the corporate group if you leave early. We also see kind of forced joint venture relationships where they're going to buy 60% of your practice on day one, and they're going to use that remaining 40% to make sure they keep you around for a few years. And then at some certain point, they'll purchase the remaining 40%. And so corporate buyers especially, they're very sophisticated in the way they set up these deal structures. And their goal is to make sure that they ensure that you're going to stick around for that period of time. And so just going back to the initial point, you have to be comfortable knowing that that's one of the commitments you're going to have, oftentimes in exchange for being able to get a higher purchase price than what you may have gotten from a private buyer. Yeah. And there's a couple of things there that I want to dig into. And the first one being the idea of the team and kind of reassuring the people that it's a good decision when you sell and the productivity level that if you do have other associates and maybe you aren't the face and the one that's driving all the revenue, that's actually probably a positive if you have the other team. And if you sell as the owner, that you're not the rock star leaving at some point and they know they have solid, talented doctors that are already in the practice. With that being said, and I know we've talked about this before, but it's come up more and more. And I'm going to give a nod to a guest that'll come in the future, Paul Diaz, because he's talked a lot about non-competes all over LinkedIn and poked some people, which I find fun. And we had a really good debate that was going to happen that due to some family stuff, it's not going to happen and got rescheduled, but then it got rescheduled again. So I don't know if it's actually going to happen or if it's just going to be me and Paul talking, but I want to get into non-competes and what that's looked like. And if you've seen a major ding on a sale, or if, again, going back to when it was peak, no one cared. And they're just like, yep, we want the practice where now they're going to start enforcing that and making a little bit more of a, I guess, a stink, but then there's certain corporate groups that are dropping it. And so I know I'm like asking a bunch of things altogether, but I'm just thinking like on the team and building that team around what you're selling. Cause at the end of the day, most of that value of the business is goodwill, right? Which the goodwill is that you provide a service for the community and they come back and that reoccurring revenue is there because there's not a lot of equipment that's going with it, right? It's the skill set of the team. So yeah, I guess that there's a ton there. So take it in chunks or however you want to address the different pieces. And I'll try to remember if there's any that I over ask. Yeah. Well, the team is critically important to a transition. And I guess just for this conversation, you can break it into kind of the professional team, you know, your doctors, if you're not a sole practitioner at the office, and obviously your non-clinical team, both are very important. And it could be a tricky situation in terms of the team whenever you're selling and whenever you're selling to a corporate in particular, that spooks people, right? If your boss comes in and says, hey, I'm handing over the practice to this giant corporation that you know nothing about and you don't know how the transition works at all, that's going to be a little scary for that team. And so that's not necessarily a legal issue. But it's an issue that comes up in nearly every transition where we have to talk to our clients, make sure we're planning and presenting it to the staff in a way that doesn't cause them, for lack of a better term, to, again, get spooked and kind of leave because that does happen. And if that happens at a large extent, the buyer is going to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to pay this amount for a hospital that no longer has all the support staff that we need to operate. And then that piece itself has become even more critically important, as I'm sure you know, and I'm sure you've talked about many, many times, you know, staffing a hospital these days is incredibly difficult. 
right? And that goes again for both professional and non-professional staff. When you look at the professional side and you talk about non-competes and look, I represent both employees who are being asked to sign non-competes and practice owners who I am suggesting have their employees sign competes, non-competes. And we're obviously coming from it from two different directions. And, and I get the argument that there should not be non-competes. There should not be restrictions on a professional's ability to go out and earn a living. And I appreciate that. As a practice owner, though, if you don't have that protection in place, it will definitely impact your ability to sell. When a buyer comes in, and if I'm a buyer who's looking at this hospital that has three doctors and the owner does 20% of the production and 40% is split between these two other associates, and you tell me there's no protection that that associate is not going to leave on day one and take all of these clients with whom they've developed the relationships with with them to another location, I'm going to have an issue with that. And so in those cases, we find our sellers going to these doctors and saying, hey, I'm going to sell my hospital. I need you to sign this non-compete. And the doctor has no real incentive to do so. And not only that, now has the ability to insert themselves into these negotiations and hold up the deal if they want to do so. And so where those agreements have not been in place previously, we oftentimes find our sellers have to kind of bring that associate into the deal and give them an economic benefit, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially for the associate. The associate's getting paid in exchange for their willingness to sign on with the new buyer. But it obviously takes something away from the seller that they've built up and it devalues their practice a bit. And so where possible, we do try to encourage our clients to have those agreements in place. That's one of the things that comes into the planning aspect we talked about, having those agreements in place in advance so that they're not left being held up whenever it comes time for them to try to sell. Do you have any feel and not going to hold you to this stat, right? Like, is it half have non-competes? Is it two-thirds? Is it next to no one has them? Do you have any gut feel on kind of what that's looked like? Yeah. I mean, it'd be hard to put a percentage to it, but it wouldn't be crazy to say half. I think that in my experience is probably you know somewhere in the ballpark. It's a huh. large percentage of doctors that do not have them in place. And the rationale for that is this is a, an issue we could Sounds like you may at some point in the future talk about for a whole podcast. It sounds like I should bring you in to have the other side of the debate, yeah. maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I want it to be fair where both sides can say what they want to say and then let people make the decision where it may lie, where you have to think of it from all angles. I think there's some really compelling cases for both spots. Right. And I can be convinced, yeah, that makes sense. Or yeah, that makes sense where I'm like, mm, this is tough. Yeah. Like, and to unfortunately, say without... Yeah, without any qualifiers, like this is the right decision. Right. And as I started to talk over you there, unfortunately, I don't know that there isn't a right answer, right? I mean, it depends who you are. And the associate obviously has a self-interest in ensuring that they're going to be able to go work wherever they want or at some point go start their own practice or buy their own hospital and operate it without those restrictions. Once that associate becomes a hospital owner, their interests have now switched where they're now on the other side of things and they have an interest in protecting that asset that they're building up or that they've purchased. So it's very tricky. We're not only talking about all these legal aspects, but obviously there are a lot of personal 
opinions that come into play. And look, I have clients that own very valuable hospitals and have told me there's no way I'm ever going to require a non-compete from my doctors. Yeah, And I may suggest against that from a legal protection and business standpoint, but that's their opinion. And their previous employers didn't require non-competes from them. And so they're not going to require them from their doctors. And I have to, while I may disagree with it, I do respect that position. And I think consistency for me, like going back to what you just said, if you're going to fight for it as the associate, then you become the owner and you switch. That's where I have a major issue. If you're going to be consistent with it throughout, I'm cool with that. Either consistently, hey, I've had a non-compete, I'll put one in place when I become the boss, or I'm not going to do it. I think it's wrong and this is why. Consistency is important. And that's been something that's been big for me, like just throughout all kinds of different phases of life. But as long as you're consistent on things, I can respect that. But it's when it's, oh, it's advantageous in this environment to switch. That's when I have a major issue. It's hard for me to then have a lot of respect for that individual at that point. Because to me, you're just twisting it to always be as selfish as possible. And I don't think that's the right way to run it. And that'll show, right? And for the doctor that said he or she will never ask that, they may have a fantastic business that will sell for top dollar because those folks are going to stay. Well, maybe not. Maybe they're going to say, well, the fun's over, right? Like now XYZ is buying it. But it kind of leads me actually to my next question that I was thinking about is the different makeup and landscape that's starting to shape up in kind of, I'll call it corporate land, right? The idea of the smaller mid-level corporate groups that are backed by veterinarians. So trying to bring more of the DVM angle and less of the, hey, it's private equity and it's high net worth investors just coming in to make a buck and how you've seen that happen. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you to pick favorites here. That's bad for <laughs> everyone involved. Well, it might not be bad for me, but it would be bad to, for me to ask you that, right? That's unfair. But have you seen that come into play more so where people are more open because of certain groups that are more you know, doctor-owned and led? Does it really matter that much? Is it, hey, the check's just got to be bigger? And I know it probably is going to be, it depends, but I think it's an interesting angle. Yeah. Yeah. Everything with an attorney is, it depends. So uh, (laughs) same way in financial advice. It's all right. I know that's the answer. (laughs) Yeah. No, look, there's a lot of creativity out there with how some of these organizations are being structured, selling to a large corporate group and then finishing out your few years of employment and then moving on is not for everybody. And I think this goes back, there's kind of the traditional view of ownership of a hospital, right? Where you maybe come out of school, you go and work for someone for a few years and you buy their hospital or you go somewhere else and you buy another hospital or you've got that training, you then take over your hospital and you've now got control of that hospital and you can operate as you wish. And then in 30 years, you'll sell it to your associate, right? That's kind of the traditional model. That's been flipped on its head, I think, multiple times over recent years. But people are now more willing to go out and look at a more unique arrangement where maybe they don't want full control or full responsibility of a hospital, but they do like an arrangement like what I talked about before, where maybe they're a minority owner that owns 40% of the hospital. They're the doctor in the hospital. And so they're kind of, while they're a minority member, they're charged with running the day-to-day operations. They have a lot of autonomy in what they're doing. And that's what they like without having all the entire responsibility of, hey, if this fails or if I make a bad decision, I'm 100% responsible, or frankly, probably even a better reason, without having to come up with the initial financing to do all this, right? Maybe they don't want to go out and take on the debt to acquire a hospital on their own. They may be willing to do all of that, 
but they just find a benefit in being in this kind of network of hospitals that they're now involved with where their ownership stake or their position may be limited to a single hospital, but they're now affiliated with multiple hospitals who are able to benefit from that scale, whether it's referrals from one another, whether it's going out and negotiating with vendors or, or purchasing equipment. As you scale up and have these hospitals that can negotiate as one, you're going to receive all those benefits. So there are a lot of reasons, but I do think that Every few months, we're kind of provided with a new deal that has a unique structure. You know, the bones are the same as every other deal, but they're adding in certain components that, frankly, are oftentimes being used to attract a veterinarian who is looking for something unique. Do you know, and this is, it's tied in, but it is random. Do you know anywhere that as all this equity in these different privately owned veterinary corporate consolidators is there anyone that tracks performance? I would love to understand what are people actually making on these hospitals? So if I sell and I have this equity, because A, the market is not liquid. I have this hospital. And yes, I know they go through the recapitalization with private equity and they go raise another round and then they get revalued. It's all this, I'll say, it's all kind of fugazi, right? Like it's all fake because they're all valuing at their own level. Like there's no open market to actually value it and say, this is what the value is. And so it makes it tricky. Do you know of anyone that's actually tracked what their value has been over time? I think there'd be a fascinating thing to build some sort of index of like privately owned veterinary medicine. And that was just something that hit me that I'm like, I'm going to ask. And I think I know the answer, but I'm just curious. Yeah. Has anyone else brought that up? No, I don't. Although we have this conversation all the time with clients, right? Because as I said, they may get this offer that is part of the offer. They've got the opportunity and oftentimes it's discretionary to take a portion of their proceeds and reinvest it back in the buyer. And right, that may be $250,000, you know, it could be whatever the number is. But you're then getting that $250,000 investment. First of all, as you mentioned, the first thing I always say is it's a totally illiquid investment in almost every circumstance. You're holding on to that until there is that recapitalization event that you've mentioned, which could be years down the road. So you have to be comfortable with that. The other piece is that Generally, your investment is, while it's a, a large sum of money to you as an individual, it is so minimal compared to the total investment in the organization that you're going to have to just take their word for it, for whatever valuation they've put to that number. And, you know, these groups are audited. And so it's not as if they can just pull a number out of the air. But unlike if I were going to invest in your business where you would open up your books and allow me to kind of have my CPA comb through them and, and, and say how much your business is worth, you're not going to be given that opportunity when you're investing in one of these larger corps. So you have to be comfortable with that. I certainly had clients who have made out very well in connection with investments that they made several years ago that have now kind of come to fruition for them. The other concern, though, that I would have is we started off talking about kind of the fluctuations in the market, and it's very cyclical in what you're able to get for a hospital, especially in the corporate market. And so it's hard. I assume I've had many financial advisors tell me this, never attempt to time the market. That's a tough thing to do. And so you're buying in at a certain point. You don't know what it's going to be in several years, and you're not going to have any control over when the sale happens. And so it's used as a selling point that, hey, you could make these last investors made X amount on the last recapitalization event. And so clients go in expecting that's what they're going to make as well. It's just not always the case. So it is a 
while there could be a high upside, there's a lot of risk that just can't be analyzed in any way when you're making that type of rollover investment. And again, you can say no, but when I think about like returns, right? So you think traditional stock market can be mm, S&P 500, kind of boring around maybe eight to 12, eight to 10. My thought, you know, if you're going to have something like this, it needs to be up there, like 30s plus, like when you think about private markets and investments, do you think that's a fair, and again, like you said, there's some tailwinds that have been beneficial for VetMed that if it's a couple of years ago and you got to sell recently, like you probably have crushed it from a return perspective. Are you willing to give a range of kind of what you think those things have been in the past or is that something you'd rather stay away from? Yeah, I'm probably not the best person okay. to, to give you that data, <laughs> right. although I'd be interested in it as well. Yeah, I want to get my hands on it because I have some thoughts of being able to unpack it. So I might try to find someone to yeah. come on the show, but it's going to be hard to someone that would actually go on the record and say it. So it'll probably have to be a side conversation for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that might be the case. <laughs> yeah. Or I'll have to do the distortion voice where it's like, we don't keep the video anyways for this stuff, but you know, the voice changers, they can't tell who they are. Maybe I can do that or it's a secret. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, I think going back to kind of the original thought process there is veterinary medicine has a lot of benefits for it longer term. As long as the time horizon fits, it's just like with any investment. Like I still would say today, yeah, even though maybe it's peak, peak valuation, it's not like the regular stock market's super cheap. So there's a lot of things that are hellaciously overvalued in was vet med going to be better than a lot of other businesses? I still think yes. So to me as a seller, if I have that opportunity and some of the deals that I've seen, it's been a mandatory thing where they've made like, Hey, this is part of what it is. So this, you don't really get to say like, here it is. You take it or leave it. Obviously great to have the cash. So you can kind of diversify against that. But yeah, that's kind of your growth. Think of that as your growth equity at that point that you have sitting there. That is absolutely a benefit. And if you believe in the team that you're selling to, you should feel comfortable with it. If you don't believe in the team that you're selling it to, then maybe you have some other issues that are going on there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That's often something that's difficult to obviously quantify or uh, predict as well. Just what the dynamics going to be with a buyer post-closing. I will say it's nice to have advisors that have some experience with some of these groups because there are, you know, as you might expect, when things go not as anticipated, post-closing, those are the deals that advisors hear about after the closing, right? If something goes perfectly, I may not get that report from a client. If something does not go as they expected, they're certainly going to relay that and discuss that with you. I'll definitely say that's an anomaly for the most part. And most of these groups, when we talk about how the, the market kind of maybe has gone down slightly over the last few months, I, I just want to be sure, again, in attorney speak to qualify that and that it's still very, very strong. And there are still, again, we focus mostly on corporate deals here. There are still a lot of benefits to selling to a corporate group if it fits kind of your expectations and your plan. Generally, it's a more complex transaction. And there are a lot of things that go along that may not go along with it with a sale to a private buyer, you know, another professional. But there are a lot of advantages that come along with that. And so I just want to make sure that these investments still can be very good, you know, quantifying them and there's some risk involved, but I think the market is still very strong for sellers who are considering these types of offers. Yep. And I'll have kind of one more question. We'll kind of then wrap up, but do you think private deals will pick up at all? You know, some of the different challenges, whether it's interest rates, whether it's other things where they'll start to get more creative with, okay, I have an associate inside and maybe it's that installment sale or it's a slower transition. Or do you think those days are still numbered? It's interesting to hear 
those within veterinary medicine that think it's all or nothing, like it has to be private or there's nothing but corporate and there's like no in between. It's just kind of what you've seen in your thoughts. Yeah, I think there's room for both. And I truly believe that there will always be both to some level. You mentioned earlier just the inventory of practices. Because the deals have been so good over the last few years, a lot of people have sold their hospitals to corporate groups and some maybe sooner than what they otherwise would have. You know, we've had some younger doctors or doctors earlier in their career who have sold that may have held on to that if they didn't get such a great offer that they got for their hospital at this time within the last two years. And so we've seen with that reduced inventory of practices, we've seen a lot of doctors kind of shift to doing a de novo startup practice, where instead of acquiring one, they go out and they lease or purchase the real estate and they start from scratch. And there are advantages and disadvantages to that as with anything, but we've definitely seen a shift, at least in our practice, to more of those startups. Like most things, I think it's cyclical. And I think, you know, as those, maybe as there's more practice startups, then the practice inventory is going to start going up again. And there's going to be more practices available for private acquisition. And so I expect that maybe if we're talking about this in another five years, we may be at a different point in this cycle and it may kind of continue to revolve and, and, happen over and over again as time progresses. Obviously, that's a risky attempt to forecast what's going to happen in the world. But to go back to your original question, yeah, we've seen reduced transactions in connection with private sales over the last few years. But I do think that that will pick back up. And we're still doing private sales. They're still out there. The way that you evaluate those practices and identify those practices maybe change slightly in the types of practices that you're looking for. It may be easier to go out and buy a practice for $400,000 and build it up and increase the productivity of that practice, as opposed to in past years, that same doctor may have wanted to go out and buy a practice that's valued at a million dollars and have a better, more productivity to start with. So you definitely have to be flexible and kind of go with the market, but I certainly don't think that private sales are not going away. Yeah. I think we share that outlook on vet med practices from that standpoint. But what's something that we haven't talked about that you think is really important or something you want to share, or maybe it's a conversation that has come up recently that you're like, you know what, more people need to understand that this is something that's out there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. One of the things, and I don't really have necessarily an answer here, but one of the things that I find myself speaking to a lot of clients with, and again, a lot of clients who are maybe selling their hospital has nothing to do with law or business. It's personal outlooks and their personal feelings. You know, a lot of these doctors have maybe inherited the hospital from their parent who was also a vet and it's been in their family for a long time. A lot of them have very close relationships with their staff members, most in fact. And a lot of people have very strong opinions about things like non-competes and whether corporate medicine is good for the industry and all of these things. And so sometimes I have clients that come to me and have signed a letter of intent and have started the process of selling their hospital. They don't really want to sell their hospital, right? For all those reasons that I just mentioned. I think that's a consideration that I hope doctors can start to have early in the process. And this goes back to the planning as well. But kind of think about what your personal goals are and things that have nothing to do with the amount of money that you're going to take from the hospital or obviously you have to think about what you're going to do after the sale and all those things. But kind of 
set aside all the economic factors and and make sure that this aligns with your personal goals. And a lot of times it does, or a lot of times you can make little tweaks to make sure that you're comfortable with it. But definitely something that from a lot of advisors who are maybe looking at your transaction and telling you this is a great deal, they're not focused on that piece. And, you know, frankly, myself, when I first come into a deal, that's not my main priority, right? That's not what I'm being paid for. But it's something that comes up a lot. And I think it's a, again, I'm the wrong person to tell you how to do this. But to make sure that you at least keep that piece in mind as you move through any piece uh, throughout your career, I think is critically important. The thing that I think about, as you say that, which is great, it's yeah, the human element of being comfortable with it, all the time spent there because you have that work family, regardless of whether they really are family, which they might be. In some cases, a lot of times there are some sort of relation working in the hospital. But you can't work forever. Even if you're young or if you're older, you can't run that hospital forever. So there's always going to be someone that you're employing that still needs to work. So how fair is it that you don't have a plan for what happens when you can't work anymore? Yeah, and you I, have to think about that. And if you do truly care about them, then you need to try to think about, okay, what's the best thing that I can do to set them up for success? And again, this is me. I am definitely a pro private practice guy. And I think I made that very clear on this. I think practice ownership gives a lot of benefits. It's not for everyone. And it's really been cool to see some of the associate contracts that with clients that we've seen. I'm like, this is incredible. Some of the stuff that people have been getting because it's been so hard to find help. It's fantastic from some of the benefits they've been able to get. But how can you transition if there's a corporate offering that can offer more of those benefits because they have the size and scale and they give healthcare that you couldn't give to that person and they can pay them a little bit more. And yeah, you can also make money too. So like you can make this a win for all of them. And sure, are they going to have the same culture as you had? The answer is going to be no. There's no way at that scale that they're going to have the same culture and the fit. They can try. And I think some are better than others. And I'm sure, Justin, you can think in your head of which ones do a better job than others. But to me, that's the way that you have to look at it. If you are getting towards the tail end of your career, if you're younger, then yeah, sure, you know, you could work and write it out, but do you want to? And if your people are that important, which I think for most owners that we work with, absolutely, Vegas brought up all the time about their team and how to reinvest in them and how to keep them happy and staffing, 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 like that comes up all the time in our conversations. And a lot of times it's like, okay, well, do you have reviews? Do they understand what's going on? Do they have a good job description? Do you have a mission statement? What are you working towards? And is the narrative of why everyone shows up every day there? And yeah, so thank you for that is the roundabout way of me <laughs> thinking through it. That is a huge part of it. And you can have a lot of money there. And if that's not what you're motivated by, which a lot of veterinarians aren't, then maybe you're going to get cold feet where someone else in another industry might be like, oh my gosh, how can you turn down that kind of money? Just say yes and run, you know, go, go never have to work again and go have fun. And for some people, it's like, that's not what they're here for. That's not what's driving them. Yeah, I think that's critically important. Let me just add one more thing based on what you said too. I think sure. it is going along with all that, being careful who you take your advice from is also critically important. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, someone may tell you you're crazy to not take this deal. That person doesn't understand all of the intricacies of what you're dealing with or what the deal is that you're being offered. Your friend may tell you that they got X, so you should ask for X. But you have to look at it from the whole picture. You know, a purchase price of a million dollars for one hospital that's structured entirely different from another purchase price of a million dollars, those deals can be vastly different. And so just make sure that the people that you are listening to and taking advice from, one, have your best interests in mind because there's unfortunately folks out there that don't and that, two are familiar with the process and the transaction that you're actually considering. That's good advice. And I think there's some 
good stories there that probably can't share at the moment. But yeah, just be cognizant of that. As we wrap up, I'm trying to remember if we did this in our first conversation, but I always let guests ask me a question if they want. And I don't know if I did this or if your interview was before I started doing that, but any question can be random. It can be anything. I know we were talking about family stuff earlier, but any questions that you would throw my way or anything that you want to end with? Yeah, I guess we definitely didn't do this. So you're putting me on the spot here. Uh, (laughs) That's what I do best. I don't tell Justin before. (laughs) Yeah, but I guess it would be helpful for me. What is the, I guess, I assume that you have a lot of interaction with folks after the sale, or at least kind of planning what they're going to do after they've gone through with one of these transactions or helping them plan for it. But what, what is the biggest concern that you see for someone who has now pulled the trigger and gone through with a transaction that has maybe changed the, could have a significant change on their wealth and their financial well-being? What concerns do you see from those folks in making the next steps as to where they go from there? It's, who am I? This has been my calling. This has been my title. I introduced myself as the veterinarian in town, and now I'm not. So mm-hmm. when I'm done, like, who am I? And what is my kind of life's work at that point? And so trying to identify what do you actually value, I think is the biggest thing. And unfortunately, in our society, so much of our, sometimes I think a lot of people, their worth is what they do for a living. And that's where they tie everything to. And that's not necessarily veterinarians, but there's a lot of people that do. And it can be a struggle to then say, okay, what am I providing? What am I doing? And if you think of it like, oh, I'm a mom, I'm a grandma, I'm a whatever, like that can help. And maybe there's passions with family, maybe there's nonprofits, maybe there's things you want to get involved with. But when you're like, yeah, I'm the owner of this hospital, like, oh, wow, how do you do all that? It's so cool. And they want to talk to you. But then when you're like, oh, I'm a retired whatever, or hey, I'm just retired in general. It's like, okay, so are you waking up and going to breakfast with your friends and then just kind of dawdling around in the morning till like 10 a.m. and then you go do whatever and then you go have lunch and then you just hang out like, what are you going to do? And I think for people that have been so darn busy for so long and wake up and kind of go through those battles with their team, it's hard to adjust that. And I would imagine, you know, for both of us, someday when we decide that we're done working, it'll be the same thing. Like what makes us tick and what do we really want to get involved in? It's hard. But I think talking through it of trying to understand what is, and this is a question I'll ask a lot of people even before they like they don't have to be owners, they don't have to do anything. Like if you couldn't do what you're doing today, so if you're a veterinarian and you could not work in vet med at all, no clinical, no industry, no nothing, what would you do? Right? Same thing. And, you know, let people kind of share stuff. And I've had all kinds of interesting answers, but I think that's an exercise that could be worthwhile. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, it's a good question. I like it. So for putting you on the spot, that's a good one. For good. those that go ahead. Oh no, just I was just gonna praise your answer as well. Oh <laughs> good job all around. Yeah. Well, and the reason I do that is because I like to have a question that I have no prep for. Because again, these interviews, I mean, we talk, we kind of know the direction we're going to go, but I'm going to throw out different things. And sometimes people are like, I don't know what you're getting at. Where are we going with this? And then it's nice to be able to turn the tables and just answer a question, honestly, because I think when you don't know what's coming, you get a true, honest answer. And I think that's what makes it kind of fun. But as we wrap up, I'll share all the different contact info that you want. But what's the best way to get a hold of you? Is it emails or go to the website? How do you encourage people to connect with you if they have questions and want to chat? Yeah, all of my contact information is on our website, obermanlaw.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. All of my contact information is listed there as well. So once you find that, call, email, happy to help where I can. So feel anybody should feel free to reach out if I can offer any assistance. Absolutely. And I will absolutely give you kudos. So anyone that I've talked to that's listened to previous podcasts that's reached out has always had really high things to say. So I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on to the podcast and sharing your knowledge. This was great. Appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Isaiah. 
Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.